0: infectious like a dog
1: Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show Being Human. <laughs> The first rule of book club is we talk about the books in book club because it'd be a bit of a rubbish book club if we didn't talk about the books. Welcome to the podcast. Coming up very shortly is my chat with Simon Garrier, and he wrote the first book in the trio of novels that came out to coincide with series two of Being Human. They start with The Road, followed by Chases by Mark Michalowski, and then Bad Blood by James Goss. These books are set between episodes two and episodes three of series two. Simon is a prolific writer. He's done a fair few novels. He's done a lot of work for Big Finish, the Doctor Who audiobooks. Following that I will have a chat with Lily who is a Being Human fan and we will run through quickly the rest of the books as well. Here is my chat with Simon. It is a pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Simon, who... Hello. Welcome along, who obviously wrote the first in the three books of the Being Human novels. Um, before we get to the main bulk of the questions, this podcast always starts off with a two couple of basic questions. The first one is, how would you identify yourself as a vampire, a werewolf or a ghost
2: Oh, I think, depending what mood I'm in, I'm all three. Because I contain multitudes. Um, but if you asked anybody else, they'd probably say werewolf. I'm a bit scruffy, and I'm always hungry. <laughs> um, and I've always spilt something down myself that I can't identify. <laughs> a stag. Um, so, a bit of stag. Yeah, so, so team, George, team George, basically. That's where I am.
1: And if you die today, what do you think your unfinished business would be?
2: The, all the things I'm late writing. <laughs> I'd have to, I'd have to finish the book that I'm, I've been working on for years. That would be it.
1: So, how many books do you think you've written? Because there's a lot.
2: Oh, um, so it's six novels. That one's easy. Then I've got my name on the cover of maybe twenty more, whether that's as an editor or the writer or the co-writer. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that I don't have my name on the cover for. So I'm not quite sure. Um, my mum asked me this question a couple of years ago, and I set up a website for myself. I thought you were going
1: to say you set up Just, a website for your mum.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, Well, effectively I did, because I set up the website literally so I could list the books and then give her a number. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, and I've done some more. I've got five books out this year, so uh, yeah. I do I do do a lot of typing. And you
1: also contribute to audio audios um stories as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, so I've written and produced and script edited for a company called Big Finish for 20 years now. So I've done loads for them. Uh and I've also made uh, programs for Radio 4 and Radio 3. Um and you know, typing for anybody really. Um um you know that's that, i'm not really very good at anything else so typing is kind so of what it i do
1: is you're basically doing your dream job essentially
2: yeah yeah this is the job that i wanted to do when i was a kid um i wanted to be a writer or an astronaut or a pop star <laughs> and uh, this was the easiest one because you can sit down yeah 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 and it's just make it up you know, or, or go and go and look something up, and then explain it. That's that's quite a lot of So, what, I what do.
1: is it that initially sparked your interest back in science fiction when you were a child? It's going to be Doctor Who, isn't
2: it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think Doctor Who was the first thing, but I was interested. You know, but I love Star Wars. Um, so I was five okay. or six and got taken to a double bill of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, which must have been in nineteen eighty two. And I've not really looked back since then. I mean, I watched Doctor Who, but everybody watched Doctor Who. Everybody I knew watched Doctor Who, adults and children alike. Um, But I think Star Wars kind of kick-started a thing of me actually actively looking for stuff like that. Um, So whether that was books or comics or um, films. Uh, And I had elder brothers and kids at school who'd recommend stuff, so... um, I just, you know, I kind of fell into it really, um, and it was then in my teens that I realised there were ways into it that you could write stuff, you could send stuff off to people. Um, so that's kind of when I thought, oh, I could actually do this as a job. Was
1: it essentially that you had so much in your imagination going on, the things that you watched, almost created a a whole new dimension for you? Almost literally, sometimes you think, well, I can, I can, I need to get this out, and that's how it came out in writing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've always written and I've always drawn little doodles and adventures and things. Um, And I think kids do. My own kids do Mm. that. I think partly I didn't stop, but also I happened to read an interview with an amazing guy called Paul Cornell at exactly the right time in my life where he talked about you know, rather than answering the question "Where do you get your ideas from," he said, "This is who you write to. This is what you do. This is how much you get paid." And it, and it was suddenly that, at a really practical level, I thought, "Oh, that's something I could actually do." So I, so I applied basically. And
1: the writing is such a, a difficult thing to get into. I a passion of mine is writing, more so when I was a bit younger in my twenties. I loved like the journalistic aspect aspect like writing tv reviews or music reviews or of, of albums and gigs and things like yeah. that but i especially found that a very difficult thing to get into mainly because the internet was really burgeoning by then and getting paid for writing yeah. is so bloody difficult so ha- yes how what would your advice be getting into writing certainly nowadays
2: well the, the main thing i would say is make sure you can pay yeah. your bills and that might mean that you can't do writing as your main activity. So get a job that, or, or some kind of support that means that you are safe and secure because that will take a lot of the scary pressure off. And then you can write in your own time. And that might mean you can only write on a Saturday morning or on a Thursday evening, but that's when you write and you'll write well because if you're writing on that Thursday evening, And you write a couple of pages or a paragraph or whatever it might be. For the rest of the week, you're going to be thinking about what you write next and where it goes and how it develops. So when you sit down on next Thursday evening, you'll write twice as much, or you'll know where to go with it. And so that is really important, I think. I I think you know, you just you don't have to stop everything else. Um, The getting paid is difficult and is increasingly difficult rates have not really gone up for writers in all the years I've been doing it uh, I've been freelance for 21 years and the rates have gone up a bit but not by very much um, and that is difficult so you need to work out how you're going to do things so I, I you know I've worked in advertising I've worked in commercial kind of writing of one sort or another um, I've written stuff about building regulations and parliamentary uh, 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 debates and whatever else. Um, The the great thing about that kind of work is that you learn loads of weird little things that you can then put into your stories. So you might meet people who are, you know, character types that you can use. You might learn facts. You might see a way of working or something comes up and you go, oh, I, I can adjust that enough. And it becomes a story. Yeah, it's
1: all life experience, isn't it, I guess, that just builds up to more fuel for what you can do, I suppose.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and so so when I was asked to pitch for a being human novel, there were bits of things that were going on in my life at the time or that I had experienced, which flicking through the book again now, and I oh yeah, that's yeah. that's kind of what was going on in life at the time. Um so, uh, you know, not least of the fact that that the Gemma Remain in the novel is named after one of my friends. And I'd, I'd completely forgotten that until I was looking at it again the other I day. I guess
1: that's the thing. Uh, every writing, to some extent, is subconsciously biographical, whether it's you're writing a song, whether you're... Unless you're literally reporting a factual news story, if you're evolving something that's imagination and creating something new, then there'll always be that life experience or your current frame of mind that will feed into.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. I don't think it's as much as going, Oh, what I've done is I've, you know, I've written my life into this, but you certainly put something of yourself into it. And the thing I'm really conscious of now with quite a body of work behind me is that I can look at stuff that I was doing 10, 15 years ago. And even though I've not just copied, you know, it's not a diary, but it, it's kind of revealing about what I was thinking about and anxious about and where my kind of heart was in things. Um, and uh, yeah, I I read um, Being Human and I was, you know, I was, what, in my early 30s then. And it, I think it has quite a sensibility of where my life was at the time and, and stuff. So yeah, I look back on it quite wistfully. And
1: was it, I guess, how fun was it immersing yourself in that world of being human and especially at that time because i assume when you wrote it series one had been out and you obviously knew where the series two was heading because obviously the the books are set between episodes two and three
2: yeah so so it was amazing i mean this was this was fantastic you know like there's twitter at the moment is not the most healthy place in the world but in 2008 the end of 2008 um I got my regular um, email through from the BFI, the British Film Institute in in London, about their events for the coming month. And I would go to one or two of those a month as a matter of course when I was living in London before I had children and, you know, I stopped going out at all. Um, And they said they were going to show the pilot for Being Human with Russell Tovey and Toby Whithouse there. And I'd seen that on BBC 3 and thought it was fun and knew that they were going to do a TV show and I knew that the TV show was going to be different from the pilot. And I thought, oh, that will be really interesting. So I went along. And it was a fun evening. I took my wife and uh, we had, you know, it was a nice night out and stuff. And I blogged a um, piece about how interesting I'd found it and how fun it was and they showed the first episode of the new series, and Russell and Toby talked about the decisions they'd made, and I was kind of like, "That's really—it's really interesting to hear. This is what we've kept. This is what we've put aside," you know. And I was interested in telly, and was trying to get into telly at the time, and whatever. So I, I kind of posted a thing about how fascinating, i f- I'd found it, tweeted a link to my blog, and within two or three days, I think it was. Um, Steve Tribe from BBC Books got in touch and said, bit of a fan of being human then, we're thinking about doing books, would you be interested? So I got a job off the fact wow. that I was a fan and was just a bit ahead of the game of everybody because I'd seen the, the preview. Um, so that was a really exciting. So Series 1 was being broadcast as we were arranging to go and have meetings with Toby Whithouse and producer Rob Percy and other members of the team. So they were telling us about their plans for Series 2, before, I think before I'd seen the end of Series 1. It was, um, yeah, it was that was very exciting. That was like being in the room. And
1: you actually ended up at the Series 2 premiere?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, by that point, our books were all done and dusted and were ready to come out and we got invited to a screening oh, I'm so i'm so jealous by the way which <laughs> yeah yeah well it was you know it's just free tickets so so it wasn't like we were in the green room or meeting the stars or anything of that sort but but a bunch of us from bbc books went um and it was crazy i mean it was rock and roll there was screaming fans there were you know mob people wanting autographs of the stars you kind of had to force your way in and fight your way out it was um yeah yeah i've been to all sorts of screenings and press dues and bits and pieces um and nothing nothing like that it was very was exciting it the
1: partly the aiden factor
2: <laughs> i think that was probably quite a lot of it yes uh he is a very pretty man uh, and very charming very nice in person as well we got to meet him briefly on set as well and he was very nice
1: quite an experience being on set as well was what, what were you on set for series two
2: yeah so we having met um having met toby and rob they were gearing up to start shooting on series two or they had begun and they kind of said look if you want to come down and visit you know just let us know and so i said yeah that'd be great why not you know we're we're setting our stories within your episodes yes it would be good to come and have a look around so we went down um it was during the summer it's the middle of the summer middle of august i think um and what we saw they were shooting at bristol hospital and they'd taken over a, a ward that wasn't being used and we hid in a corner while trying to keep out of shot and out of everybody's feet uh, you know out of everybody's way while mitchell gave um it was Lindsay marshall playing lucy and it's the scene where he gives her the fish in the jam jar <laughs> trevor <laughs> yeah 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 um and we watched that being done um and i've been on set a couple of times before that on other things and i've been on set a lot since and you know they it takes a lot of time and they do the same one one or two minutes over and over again from different angles and whatever, but it was um, it was great. The the most important thing though was we wanted to go and have a look at the house, the sh- the shared house. So we we went up to Totterdown and had a look, and then we were taken by um, amazing Derek Ritchie, who was at that point I think he was the first or second assistant director. He may have been a runner. I can't remember. Um, But Derek went on to be a producer on Doctor Who And and, you know it's very highfalutin now Um, But he Looked after me and James Goss Who who we went and visited together And he sorted us out with going to the set So in the middle of a warehouse You sort of go into a warehouse Walk into this huge space Walk past a wooden board And you're suddenly inside the flat
1: To To be in the studio of the Pink House That must have been weird
2: yeah that was that was very odd not least because you'd go upstairs yeah. and the stairs just stop so you'd have to come back down yeah. walk round the back and then there on the same level yeah, i was went the to um,
1: me and a friend went to just after series five had finished we went inside honolulu heights which is well, right yeah i think it was just an old disused bus service station yeah so you go in there and it's exactly the same thing like you you described the stairs just stop and the the bedroom is level with the living room but further along and it's all kind of almost like disorientating
2: yeah yeah it was very it was very strange yeah um but so we made lots of notes about exactly oh, okay, what the mechanics yeah. of the house were like how many how many stairs there were whose rooms were next to whose because you don't always get no. that just from watching it um so that was quite you wouldn't be useful. surprised there's a
1: lot of fan debate um, on things like the layout of the, well, there was less so now of, on the layout of the pink house and hallelujah heights and where's annie's room and where does I yeah, yeah. connect to that and all that kind of
2: thing exactly exactly so so we were doing we were having exactly those sorts of conversations trying to work it all out um and yeah. I, I don't know if it's true on being human but it's certainly true on other shows i've worked on that the reason you can't always work it out yes. is because the sets change because they'll take walls out and bits of things mm. to fit the cameras in so that the you've kind of got a house that changes shape as it's whatever. I do, I'm not sure that being human was like that, but, but um, yeah. So we wandered around there. We went to, we went to the cemetery because they were filming there. So we just got some mechanics of that so that we could work that out we, there were some other bits and pieces going on, I think, I think that's right. But yeah, they were, they could not have been nicer and more accommodating letting us wander about and ask questions and, Stuff, it was really fun. That was really fun. Yeah, that's,
1: uh, I think to a lot of people, filming would be incredibly boring. But I've seen a bit of filming of being human, I've seen No Offense because I did a bit of a press day for No Offense, and something else I saw. Yeah, Can't, oh, Broad Church, a bit of Broad Church series too. And for a lot of people, that would okay. be incredibly boring. Once they see, like, oh, there's David Tennant or whatever, after 10 minutes, they go, Well, nothing's really happening. But to me, I was fascinated by the mechanics of it and the and the way they change shots, sometimes the way they rehearse, and then how long it sometimes how long it takes, and I just found yeah, all yeah. that behind the scenes stuff really interesting.
2: If you're working on it in any capacity, yeah, oh yeah, you're busy. Yeah, yeah. So it, so it's exhausted. You know, you really put the hours in, even observing, because you're taking notes and trying to spot everything and be hyper vigilant to and everything I see going it, things on,
1: things like continuity um, and everyone's got to be on their guard to make sure everything translate to the screen. Otherwise if you're, if you're slacking, then it doesn't come across well, does it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. But generally, I mean, my, my experience of being on sets is generally that people are extremely talented and professional and you kind of watch in awe as all of these people who are very practical, Mm -hmm. which is not something I'm famous (laughs) for being good at, um, kind of get on with being very good at things. And, um, i uh you know i've seen them deal with issues on set or issues with the location and things just get sorted out very very quickly um i you know i'm constantly uh in awe of that kind of uh ability um and i did find it very fascinating and and obviously was just kind of trying to soak up as much as i could that i could throw into the book so in
1: terms of something like fan fiction more increasingly, maybe not so much now. Maybe about ten years ago, in prime Tumblr time, got a bit of stick, and I never understood that because, firstly, aren't all writers to some extent fan fiction? If if you're writing about something else that already exists, there's an element of the the genesis of a fan fiction there because when you're writing about Mitchell, George, or Annie. You're surely visualizing them and what you've seen on the screen, so you're so i yeah,, I, yeah, I can yeah, see yeah, in all, all three of the books you've all all the three authors have picked up on the certain mannerisms and the way intonations of way someone speaks, so when we're reading it we 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 can visualize it perfectly, so
2: yeah, yeah, that's the idea and 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 the three of us, Mark and James and I had quite a lot of conversations of that sort of thing and swapping notes and have you noticed this and have you noticed that? And, you know, if you put it in there, I can pick up on it in my book and, and so on. Yes. There, so there's within the sort of exercise of what you're doing as you're writing. Yes. You're, you're trying to emulate the TV series. Mm. So it feels in keeping. Um And, but fan fiction and sort of tie in stuff, can vary i mean some stuff doesn't fit at all and sometimes people go off and do something that you um would never see on tv when i did a novel for primeval one of the things they asked me to do specifically was to do things that the tv show couldn't so i set half my book in south africa because they didn't go abroad um so they were quite keen to do that at the same time I was trying to make sure I got the characters right and the plot bits right and the mannerisms right um i uh, i think so yes I think there's there's a lot of overlap between fan fiction and what we were doing i um I think there's a difference in in that I wasn't just. I, I, you know, I don't mean to, to, I, I don't mean anything negative towards fan fiction at all, because some of it is really, really good and very enjoyable, and I, and you know, and 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 I don't mean any kind of derogatory thing at all. But, but you write it for yourself yes, or for true, your yeah. group of friends, yeah. and when you're writing professionally, you have an editor and a publisher and a team, who kind of tell you what they want so you you're writing to a brief that's there and uh you know and they might not only might they give you this is what you need to do to begin with which is you know toby and rob gave us pointers in that first meeting about what they thought would work for the novels um but also once you've written it they then send you notes and have ideas and so you might rewrite so it's essentially in the
1: same way that toby being the showrunner for the show is is by default showrunner for the book because he can go oh yeah i like that we can twist that a little and give you ideas yeah yeah
2: yeah 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 but also he might not know until he sees it what he does and doesn't like so so it's just that kind of editorial process makes what we were doing a bit different because you're writing to order rather than you know I would put in stuff for my own entertainment, which is a very fan fiction thing to do, but I might get asked to take them out or to tweak them or whatever which which I know that there is some fan fiction that's edited by other people and and so on, but that that I think is where I would suggest it is different but but you know fan fiction no, isn't no, really no, my area. So, uh, what so... I meant
1: by the fan fiction thing I is think is I know. What you three were doing for the *Being Human* books wasn't fan fiction, but I think there's an element in there in the sense that obviously fans have that same experience of the TV show, and they can go, "Well, I think Mitchell would do this." I think, and they, like you say, they they'll they'll write it for themselves and their small their small group of friends. Whereas, I I think it probably gets a bit too slagged off. Some could be some is dreadful. I've read some that is absolutely dreadful, but it's it's a good source of creativity and it's a good way of of getting people into writing that
2: yeah yeah and and i you know pit fans i think fandom as a whole is about you know watching a television show is a passive experience but fandom is about participation and you might participate by writing your own stories you might write reviews you might debate it whether that's with friends in person or online you might dress up you might you know all, all of those you kind of things will make podcast. things <laughs> you might do a podcast yeah yeah you know if if all of those things fail you podcast <laughs> is uh, the, the the dishonorable <laughs> last resort. yeah exactly um but all of those ways to participate i i you know i don't want i don't want mm. to suggest that i i that I think any of these are invalid or or whatever, and and if you enjoy yeah. them, then do them. I I don't, I don't see. I think, um, and and you might write something that's to sort of scratch an itch. I want to do this character wasn't appreciated, or or I feel this take hasn't been done, and and you know that's good because it's a way of exploring these things. Um, I I hope that what my book reads like is good fiction that it kind of satisfies that that craving for for more of these for more of these people uh these characters that we love um so yeah so so i kind of see myself in the same um in terms of what i'm trying to do as i'm sat typing i think the sensibilities are similar i just think the kind of framing of what we're doing yeah. Is slightly different.
1: Um, you kind of touched on this earlier, but is it a different approach to write for something that is already established, like being human or Dot Two or Primeval, like you just mentioned? Because their voices are so well formed already, is it more liberating or are there limitations?
2: Ah, uh, it's a bit of both. So it gives you a starting point, mm. is the thing, and you can. I think a lot of writing is you kind of have to find the voice of what you're writing, um, the sort of tone of it. So I often, when I'm writing something, I have a lot of false starts until I kind of get this is how it should feel. And with a TV show, you know what that is and you know the kind of pace of it and the sense of humour of it and the kind of the structures of it. So one of the things that that Toby and Rob told us at that first meeting was they said what they found worked for being human was to make, make each episode about somebody else hmm. coming into the orbit of the main characters and their story being the story of the week and so that's what James, Mark and I did, we we each came up with a character who we could tell a story around
1: Yeah, I, there's always been that um, element of <coughs> whether it's a supernatural element or a human coming into the house or to, to the workplace and yeah, that the even though every series has an arc, like the books ultimately had an arc, it still focuses on, like you say, the story of the week.
2: So, so what, what then I was looking for was who can I bring in who will disrupt these three people? That's what you want. Do you want a, a bit of chaos, a bit of a pebble thrown into a pond? Um, And, and then I was kind of like, you know, they've had somebody turn up at the door who's violent or difficult or whatever. What if they have somebody who turns up at the door who is nice and who you know threatens to break them up break up their group because they have a rapport with one of them. That that's kind of where I started. So immediately you're like, I've got a hook for something. And there was a constant
1: unease between Um, all three of them about how they felt about her as well. So Yeah.
2: Exactly. That's that's exactly what I was thinking. Um and um and that came from um things that were going on in my life basically there was a a group that i knew and one of those people started seeing somebody and the rest of the group Mm. didn't like it and i don't you know and and that kind of group dynamic that i had observed from afar i just thought was a a place to begin you know there you've got these three very close friends who've been through a lot already and you could just sort of tease at that um and that would take you somewhere interesting. That was That's kind of where I began. Yeah. So in a novel, you can have more time to explore different avenues.
1: What is it... Yeah. ...that was the fun part of building on the being human world? What details did you enjoy filtering the novel with?
2: I think that... So another thing that Toby and Rob were quite keen on was that we kept things as real as possible. They didn't want... I, I I vaguely remember in the meeting that we had, somebody said, because, you know, Buffy had not been on that long before, and we'd all watched Buffy. And the thing was that Buffy had, by the end of the, the run, had become a bit of a superhero. And everybody knew who she was and what her powers were. And, you know, people would kind of roll their eyes at crazy things happening in their neighbourhood and monsters and whatever. And I think the feeling was not, to, to resist that for as long as possible. So, and actually all, all of the sort of comedy and emotional stuff came out of things that were very real and very relatable. So part of the fun was finding quite ordinary mundane stuff to put our characters in, where they would be fish out of water and awkward and it would be difficult and, you know... I'm a vampire and here I am washing my socks, that, that kind of stuff. Um, and that was really fun to do, you know, really. Um, so all the kind of things that you work with somebody who's annoying, you have to, how do you accommodate that? You can't just, just destroy them. them. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, that that was kind of the stuff that was really, that was, that yeah, was quite fun to do. I was going to say um, that. I
1: think a lot of what you explored in the book is the workplace area. And not, and not the workplace area yeah. of Herrick coming in, and or you know, it, a vampire coming in and trying to feast on a body. It's more the the interactions they have with people who work there. And
2: yeah, yeah. And so, so I was saying how much I, you know, I'd I'd worked in things from my own life. I was freelancing at the time for various companies doing office work of one sort or another. And when you freelance, you're a bit of an outsider because you're never there for very long. So you just kind of people watch all the time and just pick up, you know, the people flirting over the photocopier or uh, the disagreements about who replaces the empty water on the water cooler um, or all the politics of of how you pay for tea bags or who does the washing up. All of those things you kind of pick up because you work for three or four different places in quick succession and they've all got different systems for managing that kind of stuff. So you kind of you kind of soak that up as a freelancer. Which
1: was the more fun side for you to write? Was it that everyday work politics or the supernatural side of Gemma's story?
2: Well, it was it was fun, kind of just just yeah. weaving them together, and and you could jump from one to the other. So every time you would kind of run out of steam on one bit, you just jump to the other plot. That's a that's kind of a a good writer trick, um, and. I named Gemma after my great friend, Gemma remain. Who's one of the nicest people I know. And she was big into being human. So I thought I'd write a character Brilliant. with her name in it. And then I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I made her a villain and made her whatever, because she's such a nice person. And then once Gemma got wind of what I was doing, because I did talk to her about it and made sure she was okay with that. Um, she suggested actually as i was talking about the kind of life i thought she should have Gemma suggested some stuff she thought one of my ideas was with, with great tact she kind of pointed out i was going down the route of cliche with some particular elements about the mother-daughter relationship a uh, mother-son relationship um so I, I kind of changed that and i worked in some references to some friends of hers who were also into being human um and all of that was really good fun uh that's the kind of stuff that really sticks in my mind was just just how kind of uh Mm. companionable it all was you know i had i had the two other writers doing the books at the same time we had steve tribe sort of monitoring us from over the head we had toby and rob chipping in their ideas so and we you know we had a day trip to the set we had um all of this sort of stuff i just remember it being very uh yeah. Like being in a gang, really. It was um, good fun.
1: I also liked how you used Mitchell in, in the story, who, let's face it, is undead, but you kind of use him as a ghost drifting through the hospital, trying to get information. And with characters such as as such defined as these guys are, was it a choice to not focus so much on his bloodlust? Or
2: Yeah, I was trying to... I suspect I was probably... I, ca- I can't really remember, but my suspicion is that I was trying to avoid doing what they'd done with Angel in Buffy and in the Angel spin-off series. And also trying to hold to that idea that he's trying to be a good person. But, you know, the thing about Mitchell is that he's a vampire, but what what that comes out of is this idea that he's a guy with... um you know, uh, 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 what's the word, uh, a, compulsive, a compulsion, a compulsive disorder. And so I was trying to tie that to him trying to get to clean himself up with the idea of him being in the hospital. Why is he in the hospital? What what actually are the mechanics of that when you're hundreds of years old? That was kind of what I was trying to do with that. Yeah,
1: I just I thought it was a good way to place Mitchell because obviously a lot of his side is the repression of his... his Urges, whereas whereas Anissa's yeah it's yeah, almost so. like a detective trying to help help someone out, a stranger out.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what I I was trying to give him an active plot rather than you know something for him to get up and go and do, rather than things to befall him. Um, and and a detective plot is good for any character. You know, go and finding something out that gives them something to go off and do, and every time they find something. They then have to go and find something else. You know, it it leads to the next thing to go okay, and discover. I, go and so that's that was quite. I, I just thought that was um. And it and it meant that, I thought I thought you know the the worry with writing a vampire. Is that they're they're off you know and and a vampire who's trying not to kill people is um, that they can be a bit mopey. So I was just kind of conscious that I needed to not have him brooding. I needed to have him often doing things that was kind of my idea and and also i think that's what i'd seen in what they were writing for the first couple of episodes of series two i think i think you know i was taking my cue from yeah it was george
1: that was the mopey one in the first couple of episodes of series two yeah
2: yeah yeah, that was kind of Um,
1: idea i I also liked how this brought to mind the fact that in this episode uh, this novel mitchell is Constantly trying to be invisible, he he's worried about the photographs. He's he's trying to delete the photos from the journalist. He's not going. He didn't want to go to the clubs. He's he's being a bit shifty around people, and there's the total opposite to Annie, who constantly wants to be seen. So I just thought there was a good yes, yeah. a position there really between the two.
2: Yeah, yeah. So again, I think I think the Mitchell thing came from what Robert and Toby had said about not having them recognised. So I kind of took that to heart. Um, and then you could create that juxtaposition. And, and you know, you're, if you're looking for ways to underline their individual characters, you look for the things that make them different. Um, and if there's one thing that the other person does, which is totally the opposite, that, that's a good thing to underline. So, yeah, that's kind of... Yes, I... I, I It's funny, I, I I don't remember consciously thinking mm. that, but that's clearly what I was trying um, to do.
1: In terms of the George potential dad storyline, was that formed by you or was that a, a united choice?
2: That came, it certainly wasn't me, it was worked out by Mark and James and there was stuff in the news at the time about gay parents and surrogacy and everything else that was going on and Mark and James developed that idea um and I so going through the emails from the time that I've got they kind of worked that out between them and then because I was writing the first one they kind of I'd said to them look tell me what you want to set up for your books and that's kind of what they told me to put in So I did chip in some suggestions, um, not least because me and my wife were going through IVF at the time. So I had some um, idea of what was involved in what they were suggesting. So I kind of did a here's what we've been through email. Um, But really I was led by them um, and then kind of made some comments on what they wrote in terms of what i could bring to to the reality i think it
1: gave george a good opportunity to be bewildered and confused a lot of the a lot of the time
2: (laughs) yeah yeah and and but also the thing about that it was is it was relatable because if you know anybody who's been through it it's a very real and very traumatizing thing to go through so it was uh yeah i mean it was a it was a it was yeah. Th- those conversations were were mm. sensitively handled, but oh. I think I think what James and Mark wrote was was really. Um, I found it very moving, um, and and I, I wish I could take <laughs> more credit, but but that was uh, all them.
1: Last up, um, I just found it very interesting how you made the trio discover a different house with its own supernaturals and dark history, which was away from the pink house, and it shows that Annie, George, and Mitchell are aren't totally unique in this world. If a show like Being Human came back, what untouched subject would you like it to explore?
2: Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Um, I think there's loads you could do. I think... um, I think it would be really interesting to do some werewolf or vampire or ghost community that is a conspiracy theorist community because they live in secret and stuff. But imagine if they had things about vaccines or about the way elections are run or 5G aerials or whatever, and they were part of a cult of their own. I think you could do something quite with Mm. contemporary residents about that. I think you could do something about climate um, and does the climate change affect them? Does it change, you know, does the hot air mess up your cycle as a werewolf? Does it, you know, does it bring out things in you as a, as a vampire because it's warmer? Um, all of those kind, you know, do do you smell the blood more? Cause everybody's mm. hotter. That kind of stuff would be quite interesting um and also that you can see the extinction of the human species um so do you intervene uh, do you dare to allow yourself to be shown so that you can intervene that kind of stuff would be interesting to explore but yeah really what you're looking for is anything grounded in the real world that has a kind of uh, emotive effect yeah. on the reader that that's that or the or the viewer if you were doing it on tv um that's where that's that's where the drama comes from so um yeah, yeah, and, and also things like because it's been so long since Being Human was on, you know, have they all moved on? Have they got kids? Have they got lives? Have they got you know what are they doing in ordinary life that is difficult, um, that that puts stress on them as uh, as ordinary people, let alone the well, super. that's what I found stuff.
1: interesting with the whole storyline of the the road. Essentially, you know, the houses being brought down. Because there was an element of time moving on, and those the ghosts were stuck, but there's a couple of references in there while well, time yeah. moves on, and what happens to if these don't get discovered, what you know, and how many stories have a sad ending, and how many stories of these if they hadn't been discovered would uh, how long would they have gone like that
2: the The fascinating thing about that for me is I named my book the road after the 1963 okay. play tv play by nigel neal um, and nigel neal did *Quatermass* mass in 1984 and stuff and the road is one of his lost plays that i knew because i'd been told by people was really spooky and strange and was a ghost story about a road being built um i hadn't i didn't know anything more about it at the time i've now read the script and know what it's about and radio four did a amazing toby Haydock did a radio version a few years ago with mark Gatus in it which is i recommend your listeners seeking out um so my book's nothing like the nigel neil road but that's where it came from it's just i was just kind of um it's what i imagined his play would have been about um and uh that kind of sense of because I'd seen Quatermass in the Pits, which he wrote. That sense and and uh, what else? Was the other thing that he wrote, the the Stone Tape, which is the idea of memories and ghosts being kind of absorbed in the buildings. Wow. Um So so that, that 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 basically it's called the Stone Tape because the stone of an old building mm-hmm. acts like the electromag- the electronic tape that you would record sound on, and it records impressions and memories that you can then play back. Um, And those are the kinds of things I was thinking about. Um, And just to to try and give some weight and depth to the ghost bits of it. Um, And and actually, I think I was drawing on a pitch I'd done for a TV show um, in about 2005, 2006, about a ghost living in a house that since she's died has been converted okay. into flats so she haunts nice. three different families um and and basically what she tries to do is sort out their problems for them even though mm. she can't they can't see her um and it didn't really work out but i think i think those were the kind of things i was trying to oh, draw Brilliant. In.
1: i think it really does come across in the book because it, it, it made me visualize you know the past and what trauma they've been through and the, the, the lives that go on in different buildings
2: yeah yeah. well you know I'm a histro- historian by training so that's kind of my uh, it's kind of my beef <laughs> uh, thank
1: you very much for that Simon oh my great pleasure one last thing I think you will be able to sell it much better than me you've got a book coming out in the autumn
2: uh, yeah so I've actually got five books coming out uh, later this year all right Um, Well, you know, it's just that sometimes it's kind of feast or famine in this game. Um, But also by, you know, the way that different schedules have worked out, they're all coming out more or less together. Um, So I've got a a bunch of Doctor Who things coming out in um, relation to the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, Some titles from BBC Books. a, A deep dive into The Edge of Destruction, which is a story from 1964. And the thing that I am working on at the moment, which is a biography of David Whittaker, who was the first script editor of Doctor Who, or the first story editor of Doctor Who, who, whose life people don't really know very much about. I certainly didn't when I began this. Um, And it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating and strange and surprising. uh, And a lot of the things that went on in his life fed into, I think, why Doctor Who was so successful.
1: That's brilliant. So, that will be out in around autumn time?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Dr. Uh, David Whittaker in An Exciting Adventure with Television will be out from 10 Acre in October.
1: Thank you very much for that.
2: My great pleasure. Thank you for letting me plug it.
1: Once again, many thanks to Simon for coming on the podcast. I really loved that chat, and it was interesting getting behind the scenes, really, just in terms of what was going through his mind, and the processes involved. Now for my quick chat with Box Tunnel pod newbie, Lily, as we chat about the books as a trio. And welcome to another newbie on the podcast, Lily Golding. Welcome, welcome to the pod.
0: Hi, great to be here.
1: I know you from some Being Human trips from about 10, 11 years ago, and I remember there was yeah. a, there was a time that we were waiting for everyone else to turn up from wherever they were coming from. And you, you were like, come on, let's go to the library, uh, the library, the bookstore. That's what it was. And I was like, all right, okay, bookstore. And anyway, we ended up in the corner of the bookstore. You were at a table, just like talking to me about uh, half an hour or an hour, like literally about your passion for books. And you, you still got it, haven't you? Yeah, and uh, I run a blog,
0: The Whispering of the Pages, yeah, as well. What
1: is it about? books that is that holds a special place in your heart is it the 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 freedom of the imagination
0: yeah i mean it's just it's stories in general so i do like tv and stuff obviously i like tv because i'm on a being human podcast <laughs> but um, yeah so it's, it's stories in general um books give me a lot of, of freedom to like imagine things the way i want
1: so when did you first get into being human then was it right from the start
0: it was uh, I think it was uh, a couple of days before the fourth episode aired on BBC Three at the very beginning Um, I found it on iPlayer and uh, started watching and fell in love
1: and what was it that that grabbed your imagination
0: I relate a lot to the characters um, especially Annie yeah because I was going through some stuff at the time Um, and I had quite bad agoraphobia and Hmm. of course she she was based on agoraphobia and not being able to go out and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think that really spoke to her.
1: Do you wish they'd explored that side of her more?
0: Um, I think they did plenty, actually, because mm. especially in early episodes with her, you know, not going out and not being able to be seen and, you know, you can feel quite invisible when you have agoraphobia.
1: Yeah. So you related to it, and then from everything else, your your love of the show formed.
0: Yeah, and I also really like the comedy of it, and how it combines these really sort of touching storylines, mm. quite harsh topics, with with just this this amazing comedy element.
1: So the obligatory podcast questions: If you were to identify as a werewolf, a vampire, or a ghost, which one would it be? It has
0: to be a ghost because, as I said, the other atmosphere. <laughs>
1: It's me. Yeah. And uh, if you were to die today and you had some unfinished business, what do you reckon the unfinished business would be?
0: It's got to be my to pile. I've got so many books that I want to get read before I die, <laughs> and I'm not going to do it.
1: <laughs> I, I hate to tell you, the books won't stop. I know, I know. It's, it's a nightmare. It really is. <laughs> All right, we will step into the first book of the. Trio, which is called the road uh, it's worth pointing out that these are set between episodes two and episode three all three books are set between episodes two and episode three of series two the road so you've recently read it um yeah. what what was your initial thoughts of it of reading it again
0: yeah um I really I really like how focused on Annie it is cause mm. as I said' my favorite character um I felt it was maybe a little too suicide based that kind of was a bit you know, out of nowhere for me. But um I really liked the characters obviously I liked Annie, Mitchell and George, but I also liked the characters that were introduced from the book. Um I also I have to say I audioed it and uh it was read by Leonora Cricklow. Yeah. And she did a wonderful job of it.
1: Yeah, I haven't checked out the audio recordings actually. I should do really
0: oh, yeah. they've got the first two. I couldn't find the third one on audio. Hmm. But the
1: first two are read by by Lenora Cricklow and um, George. Um, what I found interesting is, I, I touched on this with my interview with Simon, is how I view Mitchell as always almost been used like a ghost in this episode because he's sneaking around the hospital trying to get information and and trying to be invisible with the journalist and his his photographs. But there is
0: why didn't
1: they just use Annie? Uh, There is one, uh, this really stood out for me, the one one description that Mitchell uses when he's in the hospital. I'll read this bit out now because it really stayed with me. He says, A coma was a cruel parody of life as a vampire. The bodies around the intensive care unit went on the same cusp of life and death as Mitchell, not quite one or the other. But while Mitchell feasted on blood to keep himself alive, these bodies were far more odious parasites. True, they were just plugged into the wall, the machine running off the mains, but they also needed so much tending. At intervals throughout the day, nurses would come to check over the bodies, massaging their limbs and moving their sleepers so their muscles didn't wither away. There was some, something eerie and graceful about that exercise regime. Mitchell had nightmares about it, paralysed yet alive, unable to scream as weary hands shaved and scrubbed and pressed him. Being a vampire didn't mean living forever, it meant it retaining independence. So this wretched state, terrified, and being helpless, weak, reliant on others. He's almost got that, um, almost an empathy for humans there. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And like he's it's comparing perfect. it to his own state, but in a, in a different form.
0: Because it's just so touching.
1: Um, how did you find the George potential storyline? Because that that only that only, the seeds are only just sown in this this book.
0: Yeah. And it was interesting considering we're reading it back now after we know what happens yes. with George, Nina later on. It was interesting that they went for that sort of thing in the show after there was a book that was also sort of, is George going to be a parent when he's a werewolf?
1: Yeah, I think maybe part of that, is because, because of where it's set in Series 2, Nina had left at that stage, hadn't she? So maybe it was finding George another outlet
0: yeah i think yeah probably because and it's it's a really human storyline as well mm. which is is great for because um because you can get a bit bored of just george turning into a werewolf every full moon mm. and have just a very human storyline to contrast that with it's always been what's been good about george's character
1: that's like, yeah that's again that's probably partly because it's set between 2 and 3 yeah. there isn't really a lot about his battle with being a werewolf or a transformation so yeah like you say, that is that is a good way to explore it
0: yeah
1: what i liked most about this book is the ending when they get to the road and they encounter the 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 ghosts in the road and the, the traumas and the experience and how it all ties together with yeah, yeah. with with Annie's friend and and Mitchell and the journalist and all that kind of thing, I thought yeah. I thought that was quite a interesting way to end it. To to take the super, like you say, it's probably more Annie's story, and this is about other supernaturals in another house. Did you find it creepy at all the the ending?
0: I did, yeah. Um, that bit where um there was the ghost in the house and the hanging rope comes yes. down, yeah. Yeah, I was listening to it late at night, and I was just like, no,
1: no. Yeah, that might probably be a bit creepier, on audio, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, it was. It was very creepy.
1: <laughs> does it? Does do do the do the audio books have like music in the background or like?
0: Um, not always. Sometimes they normally have at the start and the end. I don't think this had
1: uh, any music at all. So there wasn't like a sudden jolt of music when the hanging rope <laughs> came down. <laughs> <laughs>
0: did a great way of um, of describing it. It
1: just was very atmospheric. Yeah, I I really like this book. I think it focuses a lot on the humanity of everyone, from Annie yeah. to George and Mitchell, and there's not a lot of until the end, and not a lot of supernatural goings on in this one.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Alright, we'll get on to Chasers. This, I think, the flashbacks at the beginning, obviously, yeah. when you first read this, did you think that was Mitchell?
0: I I did actually guess, but I wonder how much, yeah, um, I didn't, I don't know what I thought the previous time, but this time I did guess, and I wonder how much that was that I, I knew it from before.
1: Ah, I see. Uh, see, I, I'm gullible, I, I just thought it was Mitchell, <laughs> even on the second reading. Yeah, so Mitchell meets Leo, who's in the hospital, and he says he has cancer. And a strange friendship, kind of an easy friendship, I suppose, forms. And nobody can work out what Leo's intentions are, but it turns out he's a vampire obsessive and just wants to be one. Like you say, in terms of George, the storyline that ultimately happened to him in the TV series, in Being Human, in series three, Mitchell gets a goth fanboy. So (laughs) perhaps, you know this planted the seeds
0: maybe maybe i do wonder
1: the baby storyline kind of fizzles out would you say here yeah.
0: yeah it just i wasn't really that into i was more into the leo stuff in that book
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: cuz the baby, it seemed like it would never be able to go anywhere cuz how can how could george possibly have a werewolf it's just not in his character to have a baby mm. when it could be a werewolf
1: and also again we we're talking about the timeline if it's between episodes two and three, there just wouldn't be that at yeah. the, the time yeah I think the leo is is the interesting story because it, the uneasiness yeah. and the mystery there
0: yes and um yeah it was it was good to see them having again a new friend, each of these books seems to come with a new friend, hmm. and uh it was interesting to see them going out and um having a good time. And how they managed that with Annie as well was really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because that's not really a side we get from her in the TV show. Okay, and the last one, Bad Blood.
0: So, basically, um, Annie's old friend comes to the house. And she, um, she wants to get Annie out of her shell. So she suggests running bingo for the local people at this, this sports hall. And so it's all about Annie and Mitchell and George are sort of arranging the, the bingo. And it ends up with a load of vampires in a hall doing bingo. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. It was absolutely, yeah, it, it didn't take itself seriously mm. while still having quite a serious plot underneath. And it was just exactly, it was exactly like the show, really. It just, it was okay to take the mick out of itself and saying, yeah, this is a ridiculous plot, but...
1: I can totally, I can totally visualise Annie doing bingo. There's just no, there's yeah, no doubt yeah. about it.
0: Yeah, so, um, that's the one I definitely recommend, but you sort of have to read Chasers, especially. Yeah before because what happens with Leo in Chasers comes up again at the end of Bad Blood.
1: But yeah in terms of Mitchell's storyline here
0: Mitchell was sort of just going I mean he was sort of going along with Annie's bingo pan and helping handing out flyers and stuff but what really comes in is is with the so it wasn't I don't think it was really a Mitchell storyline I think it was more a vampire storyline yeah because the thing is that the vampires have this, this strange smell in the air and that, they're getting you know, really turned on by this, y- yeah. this smell. Um, <laughs> so I, I would say you know, Mitchell was there, he, he was affected by it, you know, but as regards to Mitchell content, I don't think there was that, that you know, it wasn't any more in the spotlight no. in the book than in the previous books. Yeah, it was um, fighting off the vampires who wanted to eat them in the sports club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all go to bingo and um, then at some point, um, I won't tell you why because I want to leave some stuff, the audience at home to read themselves, but um, at one point all the vampires turn into this insatiable bloodlust <laughs> and just, they end up locked in bathrooms and store cupboards, and yeah, the vampires all come after them basically.
1: So would you say uh, these books could easily be classed as canon and fit in with the Series 2?
0: I would say no, and this is because they had some really big inaccuracies. Okay. Um, Mainly, two of the books mentioned Mitchell drinking blood from blood bags from, from the hospital. Mm-hmm. Which he never, you know, one, one time in series one, he brings one to Lauren and she hates it because it's it's not good enough. Yeah. And that in human canon, so that really bugged me.
1: There's also, uh, there is one moment, I think it's in Chasers, where they talk about George French, for George's friendship group. And he says, well, George has got Tully. And I'm thinking, no, yeah. he, no he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> there is that. I was a bit like, no, he doesn't.
0: I say I don't think they're canon, but I do think they are great extras. You know, you you don't need to read them to no. be a human fan, but they're great if you want a bit of extra.
1: Yeah, I just I think they're really good to expand the world a little, and yeah,
0: yeah.
1: and like you say, just just get that more human side to them. And there, yeah. there's much more mainly because it's a novel yeah. and you've got more time to do it. But there's much more interaction between the trio around the yeah. house. And I know a lot of people moaned in Series 2 and Series 3 that, you know, they weren't together as much and they were more fractured. But obviously, you kind of have to do that for a story and for the interest. You, you can't you, you can't just have them around the table.
0: Eight episodes? Yeah. You've yeah. got a lot to fit into that series. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, so Bad Blood is your favourite one? Yes. So is there any other supernatural books you're into i know this i know the answer to this is yes
0: (laughs) yeah i I read all sorts of um i read a lot of fantasy and a a fair amount of paranormal
1: yeah
0: Um, i'm trying to think of other series that i could recommend that's sort of paranormal but my mind is honestly blanking but if you check out my blog there are some on there
1: (laughs) there's a plug that's that's how a pro does it it is a plug yes (laughs) Thanks once again to Lily for coming on the podcast. I'll put a link to her blog, The Whispering of the Pages, in the show notes. And that concludes this episode. Coming up in a few days' time will be the Series 2 finale, All God's Children. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram as the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, and on Twitter as Box Tunnel Pod, and Tumblr as Box Tunnel Pod. I've I had an old account, I couldn't get into it, or Tumblr didn't like it, so I set up a new account on Tumblr, so I'll be a bit more active on Tumblr at BoxTunnelPod. Like, subscribe on whatever app you are listening on, and until next time, I don't have a book-related exit. Until next time, let's close the chapter, close the book on this. See you next time. Was the box turn podcast and thanks?